I, as we were saying, I couldn't help but appreciate the creativity of Jessica. Um, we sang before the scripture reading a song entitled, uh, Is He Worthy? That was written by Andrew Peterson. And the song we just sang was written by somebody named Sky Peterson. It's father and daughter. And I, I thought that was just um, incredibly creative and appropriate of Jessica to put together a father-daughter set. Both songs speak to the theme of our sermon for today. It's uh, Daniel chapter 1. We begin our study of the book of Daniel. And as we enter into this text, let's do a thought experiment. Let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of Daniel and his friends. How would you feel if you were suddenly uprooted from your homeland into a foreign land? Worse, you are in that foreign land because your country lost to that land, and you are now essentially a prisoner of war. That's a situation that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. And interestingly enough, our current situation seems to be quite similar to theirs. And no, we are not prisoners of war, but the church seems to have lost its power in society. And so, for many of us, this society seems to be a foreign country. Secularization has pushed us to the margins of society, and government legislation seems bent on limiting religious freedom. And that's why we're studying the book of Daniel. It is a book that encourages us and instructs us how we can be faithful in exile by pointing us back to our sovereign God. Let's acknowledge that we are in exile. In fact, that's what 1 Peter chapter 1 says. It addresses exiles. We'll unpack that later in the series. But in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, the book of Daniel answers the great question that stands before us. How can the Christian whose citizenship is in heaven according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, sing the Lord's song as an exile here, according to 1 Peter 1, 1. So let's read the text. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it seemed, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, the author of Daniel sets the stage by making it clear that Babylon's victory had nothing to do with its superior forces or its brilliant military strategy. And neither was it because Babylon's gods were stronger than Yahweh. See, during those days, people believed that battles were decided by the gods. My God can beat up your God, and that's why I beat you in battle. And so the Babylonians thought that they had triumphed because of their gods. That's why Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels or the articles from the temple in Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. But the author wants to make it clear. Verse 2. Babylon defeated Judah because the Lord, Yahweh, delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In that defeat, God was still in control, working out his purposes. Now, we don't necessarily see God's hand unless 
Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us there. Scripture tells us in Isaiah chapter 39 what was going on. God was keeping his word to Hezekiah about 150 years before these events. Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In this passage, God had warned Hezekiah because Hezekiah had put his faith in an alliance with Babylon to protect Judah from the Assyrian threat. And neither Hezekiah nor his successors had given God their total trust and allegiance. Despite God patiently proving himself to them over and over, and despite God warning them over and over to put their trust in him alone. And so finally, God disciplined them by giving them over to the very people in whom they had trusted, the Babylonians. And so we need to recognize that the defeat of Jerusalem was an act of faithful love. God was fulfilling his covenant, even if the people did not necessarily understand what God was doing. Now, to go back to Daniel and his friends, being a prisoner of war is traumatic. But it looked, in verse 3 and verse 4, as if things were not going too badly for Daniel and his friends. The Babylonians recognized their noble birth. They were members. They they were from the tribe of Judah and presumably from the family of um, Jehoiakim because they were both of the royal family and of the nobility. They recognized their good looks, their intelligence, their wit. They were designated for posts in government. And they were even provided training. So they had a three-year internship after which they would be given jobs in civil service. And they had food from the king's own table. And um, that meant that they had really good food. That was part of the Babylonian strategy to keep their subjects under control. These young Jewish nobles serving in government would have the respect of their countrymen, but they would be loyal to Babylon. And therein lay the problem. This situation was not a matter of persecution, but of seduction. The Babylonians were trying to turn Daniel and his friends into cultural Babylonians. That's why in verse 7, the Babylonians changed their names. It wasn't a question of their Hebrew names being too hard for the Babylonians to pronounce. Their identity as Jews was being erased. The name Daniel means God is my judge. He was renamed Belteshazzar. Bel, guard his life. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. He was renamed Abednego, servant of Nabu. And Nabu is not the planet that you guys are thinking of. Stop it. (laughs) Bel and Nabu 
were gods of the Babylonians. We don't know the meaning of Shadrach and Meshach, but they were likely also a reference to Babylonian gods. And that renaming of these Jewish young men symbolized both a new ownership and a new allegiance. From allegiance to Yahweh to allegiance to the gods of Babylon. And that's why in verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. It wasn't simply a matter of ceremonial purity or of maintaining Jewish identity. See, if, if you're a foreigner moving to another country like me, there is a tendency to double down on your ethnic identity. That wasn't what was going on for Daniel and his friends. They recognized that they were being seduced into giving their allegiance to Babylon and its gods through the allure of status and comfort. But they also realized that the issue was not Babylon's attempts to seduce them. The issue was their response. Ian Dugan points out, the key to understanding why the four young men abstained from the royal food and wine is noticing that instead they chose to eat only those things that grow naturally, grains and vegetables, and to drink only naturally occurring water, verse 12. This suggests that the goal of this simple lifestyle was to be constantly reminded of their dependence upon their creator God for their food, not King Nebuchadnezzar. Dependence on Nebuchadnezzar's rich food would have been defiling because it would have repeated in their own lives the sin of King Hezekiah that brought this judgment upon God's people in the first place. Daniel recognized that the core issue was his heart. And the core question was, in whom will we trust? As Martin Luther wrote, a God is a term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. And for Daniel and for his friends, that was the issue. On whom will our heart rely and depend? See, faithful living in exile demands that we develop the wisdom to recognize the right hills on which we die. And that we humbly cast ourselves, as we humbly cast ourselves on Christ. And his spirit enables us to understand and apply scripture rightly in order to triage our causes. The prophet Jeremiah also told the exiles, 
Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because, of it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so you might say that guided by God's word through Jeremiah, Daniel could accept the training the Babylonians provided because he recognized this will equip me to seek the peace and prosperity of the city where God has placed me. And he would still be obeying Yahweh as he served in the Babylonian court. In fact, if you read it in light of Isaiah, Daniel was simply fulfilling the prophecy that God had made. And God would still be guiding him. Daniel could even accept the name the Babylonians had given him. After all, what's in a name? A rose by any name will smell, will smell just as sweet. The name would not change his identity. The name could not change his allegiance. For as long as his confidence, for as long as his heart was resting in Yahweh, that name would not change anything. But he recognized that the food and the wine would erode his dependence on God. Because then his health would be attributed to the king's provision. And so he resolved to abstain from the king's food to ensure that his faith and confidence were in Yahweh alone. The problem then, as now, is not external but internal. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness is a heart issue. And Daniel was extremely conscious of his own heart's tendency to wander away from God. And that shaped his handling of the situation. And that's why I really appreciated Will's call last week to repent of our arrogance. See, we need to deal with the log in our eyes before we address the sawdust in other people's eyes. And above all, we need the humility that comes from being conscious of being sinners who have received and continue to receive the mercy of Christ to equip us to engage with people around us. And that recognition of his own heart's frailty shaped Daniel's response. So instead of taking unilateral action to assert his rights and freedom by rejecting the king's food outright in a public show of disdain, Daniel acts in wise humility. Notice in verse 9, in verse 8 and verse 9, how he, uh, in verse 8, how he asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And we are told that God, in verse 9, gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel could act and keep himself from defilement because God had not abandoned them in exile. He was still with them, working for their good and for his glory. Now, we, we would expect then that verse 10 would, would have the chief of the eunuch saying, Absolutely, Daniel, you don't need to eat that food. I'll keep it for myself. 
Well, we are a little bit surprised because in verse 10, the official denies Daniel's request because he was afraid it would cost him his life. Ashpenaz says, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with a king. I mean, I, Daniel, I wish I could do this, but that might get me killed. And so wisely, and, he, and here's the wonderful thing about this account. Wisely, Daniel was not going to put Ashpenaz's life in jeopardy, even if his purity mattered more to him than life itself. See, for Daniel to focus on his welfare to the detriment of Ashpenaz would also have been unfaithful to God, wouldn't it? Wisdom that arises from the fear of the Lord isn't simply concerned about itself. True wisdom cares for others, looks out for the benefit of everyone. And so Daniel looks for another solution. Verse 11, we are told, Daniel went further down the food chain. All right, this request is a little too much. Let me go to the steward whom Ashpenaz had appointed. And let's frame it as a trial version. Give us vegetable and water for 10 days. Low risk. You're in control, boss. And the steward agreed. Dale Ralph Davis, by the way, if you can get a copy of Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on Daniel, it's amazing. Feel free to use it. In the face of Ashpenaz's refusal in verse 10, or at least seeming refusal, Daniel did not throw a religious hissy fit, blowing off about Babylon's heavy-handedness and insensitivity. He simply looked around for the next possible step to take to see where that might land him. Daniel was not one of those people who believed that firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. It's as if Daniel is fully aware that he is under the Lord's grace. Or as James would put it in James chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Hear these words. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And Daniel and his friends had a harvest of righteousness, didn't they? See, we are told in verse 15 that after the 10-day trial, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh 
than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, please note, y'all know I'm a meatitarian. This does not mean I am going to change my diet and become a vegetarian, even though I know vegetables are good for you. I will eat vegetables <laughs> happily sometimes. What is at stake? Parents, please do not tell your children. See, look at Daniel. He ate his vegetables. He got healthy. <laughs> what is at stake here is not physical health, but spiritual health. They put their trust in God by eating only vegetables and water. And God honored their faith by giving them good health. Moreover, we are told in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of their training, verse 19, the king found them far superior to the rest of their classmates, to the rest of their cohort. In fact, in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. That is God enabling Daniel and his friends to be faithful to him. And please note that we cannot say that God blessed Daniel because he resolved to be pure. As if somehow God, that, as if God owed Daniel the favor. See, the point of the story isn't there to be a Daniel, please. The author is telling us that our sovereign God is faithful. He enables us to live for him. Underlying this passage is the fact that God was at work from the beginning to the end. God, not Daniel, is the true hero of this story. Daniel was simply responding to the grace that God was giving to him. And you see that because in verse 1 and 2, in verse 9, in verse 17, the language is repeated. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And that same God who gave Judah into Babylon's hands gave Daniel, verse 9, favor in the sight of Ashpenaz. And that same God gave Daniel and his friends superior health and wisdom. If you pay attention to the text, you will realize that this, the author is saying it's about God giving in grace. He is the faithful God who is at work accomplishing his purposes even when his people are in exile. And from the very beginning of the book, God is telling the exiles, our God gives. Our God gives grace. Our God is faithful. Our God has not abandoned us. And that is the reality that should shape our posture today. See, all too often, we are too focused on regaining what God, in His wise goodness, has providentially allowed us to lose. Instead of seeking to be faithful stewards of what He has given. 
just as Daniel was sent into exile to seek the welfare of the city. God has sent us into this city to seek its welfare. Please understand, we are citizens of heaven. We are elect exiles of the dispersion, as Peter would put it. So our calling is to live as exiles. Seeking the welfare of the city, faithful to live for Christ where he has put us. Our homes, our workplaces, our friendships, our neighborhoods. Because we are God's bond servants. Peter takes it a step further in chapter 2. And he says, we are, he has called us out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And please understand, it is not because we are somehow better than the people around us. The Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 reminds us, for we ourselves were once foolish. I wish that were true completely. (laughs) Sometimes we still are. (laughs) For ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and righteous goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. It's not because we're somehow special. It's not because we're somehow better. It is because he has lavished his grace on us. That we are sent out. So that the grace of God transforms us and motivates us to adorn the gospel by seeking the welfare of our city. And as we live for Christ, Our confidence is that our sovereign Lord has all things in hand. He's at work. And he will take our feeble efforts to accomplish his purposes. And that's why the chapter closes with a notice. It's it's sort of anticlimactic in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And you might say, so what? Well, you realize that Cyrus is the king of Persia. The empire that defeated Babylon many years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, the conqueror of Jerusalem. Again, Dale Ralph Davis. Babylon, the hairy-chested macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history, while fragile Dionel, servant of the Most High God, is still on his feet. People talk about being on the wrong side of history. Well, you know what? (laughs) I don't worry about that. You know why? Because our God is in control of history. He's written it. 
It's his story. And we know the end, don't we? Christ has triumphed. He triumphed on the cross. And he is coming again to consummate his victory. Today, we live in the already and not yet. So we know Christ has triumphed, but we do not always see that triumph. As we sang earlier, do you see the world is broken? It is. Is the new creation coming? Absolutely it is. And so as we live in the already not yet, as members of the new creation longing for that consummation, he has given us a spirit so that we can be about his business. And so brothers and sisters, let us be faithful to act wisely as exiles in this world, living for our Savior, trusting in him as we long for the consummation of that new creation. And like Daniel and his friends, point forward to the new creation that Christ will consummate when he returns as we faithfully live for our sovereign Lord who is at work in and through us to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though it seems that all is bleak and dark, and when it seems as if the church has been defeated, we thank you that circumstances do not tell the whole story. We thank you that your word tells us that Christ is king. He is reigning over all. And even though we do not see that victory yet, yet we know that he's in control. And we thank you that we can look back to the cross, that horrible event where it seemed as if Satan had won the victory and God had been defeated because the crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate rejection of God. And yet, Father, thank you. Because in what seemed to be Satan's victory was Satan's defeat. For through that horrible crucifixion, our sins are paid for. Christ offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for us so that our sins are forgiven. And in his resurrection, death is defeated. And he brought in the new creation. And in that horrible, horrible event, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, Pilate and Herod, did only that which your hand and purpose determined to take place. God, we thank you that you truly are the sovereign Lord 
who uses even the worst actions of men to accomplish your holy, great, and good purposes. So, Father, help us. Help us to look at our circumstances through the eyes of faith, through the spectacles of Scripture, so that we may live relying on you. And in relying of you, on you, live faithful to you. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to guide and direct us as we seek to understand your word. And that your spirit dwells in us to give us the strength to obey you, to live for your glory. So help us, Father, by your spirit, to live to glorify you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.